Okay. All right. Let's roll. All right. Broadcast direct from Straight Up Studios. Uh, you know, I, I didn't look and see what, what episode we're on here, but I think, I want to say 38? I want to say 38. Let's go with 38. I think 38 is a pretty good number. I feel good about that. 38. Finally feels a little bit like uh, like January here, so. Yeah. There you go. Well, it should be a good night. Um, I'm going to give you to our host, Mr. Rick Atwater. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. And uh, welcome to our listeners tonight and our guest, Dr. Ramesh Vermuri. Um, let's see. Our tag tonight is Q&A about medication and recovery with Doc V. <laughs> and uh, uh, we are here every Sunday night at 8 o'clock, so we hope that you uh, uh, will join us when you get a chance. Um, and thanks to our engineer tonight, Chris. At water. Um. <laughs> hey, I will say we we are working with some new equipment here, so if anything sounds a little off, uh, I think we got it dialed in, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if it if it sounds if it sounds goofy, call us immediately. We'll, yeah, and we'll probably we probably won't do anything about it. Yeah, well, I just, I just like to know <laughs> that number. By the way, if you want to call us, area code three two three seven nine two two nine seven seven. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. That was my next. Uh, that was the next line on my page here, dude. Oh well, there, I'm sorry about that. Well, okay. You can call for you know if we're having technical difficulties. I'd love to know about it, but we'd love to hear from you. And we if would. You have questions during the show about the guest. Any questions for uh, uh, for Rick or Dr. V? Uh, please feel free to give us a call. We would. Yes, we would like. We would definitely like that. Um, and you can also tweet us at Rick Atwater. Um, tweet. And that, and you can tweet us in such a way that we will get your tweet during the show, and we can respond to said tweet on the show live. So That's like the magic of technology, right there. You got it. Um, right. Also, please remember to check out recoveryinternetradio.com for all our archive shows and recovery resources. Um, we've got a couple of people that we we like to plug. I'm going to save that for. Uh, I'm going to save that for later or at uh, halftime. Because I, I like to sort of get right at what we're here to talk about. Okay. So, um, so again, thanks for coming out on this beautiful, this beautiful cold, night. Sunday, cold Sunday night. <laughs> cold Sunday night. Um, the first, the first question I had that I and I, I sent these to you, so I, I was, you know, I assume you kind of took a look at them. But the first question I had was, um, you know, you've worked quite a bit with people that have addictions problems. Yes. And have done that for, for a while. Thirty three years. <laughs> How long? Thirty three years. Thirty three. Okay. So um you kinda know the know the territory? I hope so. <laughs> I, I I think so. I think your your reputation is that you do. Thank you. Um yeah uh what what percentage of the people that you see are, are have addiction as part of their their case? Issues. Since I went to treatment in 2000, 2001, I tend to do more addiction psychiatry in my practice. Mm-hmm. Before I probably had less than 5%. Mm-hmm. Now I have, now again, opiates became such a big issue in McHenry County. Right. So, and there are newer drugs like Suboxone, mm-hmm. which, which increased the, my practice percentage-wise. Probably yeah. I'd say twenty five twenty to twenty five percent. Okay. Yeah. It would increase the Yeah, I was thinking do do you do they find you or do you find them? I <laughs> both. <laughs> <laughs> because when you're open, it seems to me like when you're when you're open to it, especially if you have your personal knowledge of it, it it just people will find you. Like friends like you, <laughs> who know I'm in. Yeah, yeah. And I go to AA and I do the right things at least. Yeah. People who feel safe sending to a psychiatrist who has an addiction background. Right. Before. Right. You know the stigma about psychiatrists is that they prescribe medications. Right. Like Valium, Clonopin, blah blah blah. Right. So there's a lot of stigma about psychiatrists in addiction. Now with the newer drugs and more 
awareness about first step programs yeah you know when i did my residency i mean i didn't know anything about first step program i mean i know you know they talk more about dts and uh, addictions and the consequences the medical the medical part refer them to aa yeah until you go to aa what is that about when i before 2001 i only know one thing which is step one which is your powerless in front of alcohol your life becomes unmanageable but for that i don't know anything about other steps right or what happens what after happens that what happens afterwards just go so you're powerless and hope that something hope. something good happens yeah it's a good start and yeah. it does start, people sure. who follow through it does yeah but it doesn't then you don't know what to do with them <laughs> <laughs> right so do you do do you think that they're um more uh, astute about that now in medical school more is there more training for people incoming more training even hospital administrators now okay. let's say if you're impaired physician first thing they say is one they send you to an addictionologist two they make sure you go through a mm-hmm. so typically what happens is let's say you're a nurse physician or any pharmacist mm-hmm. and once they find out you're impaired professional mm-hmm. they send you to an impaired professional program right which is very well monitored for 2 years uh-huh they make sure that you are clean you go to meetings and they have a case worker who checks on you mm-hmm. every couple of weeks mm-hmm. and uh, random screenings and all right. those things right. and they also do there's a new test called EGD testing which in fact what happened to me was one time i used the hand sanitizer oh week later you test negative Yeah, I mean, you test positive. Test positive for alcohol? Just touching. Hand <laughs> sanitizer. Oh, Such a specific test. Now, there's no way... Is that test a... Is that a, a, a blood, blood test? Urine test. Urine test. Mm-hmm. So, they look for the metabolites. Right. So, they're so specific. For 10 days, you touch alcohol, it will show up. Just like marijuana for 35 days. Is that a commonly used mm-hmm. test now? Or, or does it, I don't think it is. It's, it's the same price, but it's not commonly used. Usually when you send for a urine toxicology or drug screen, the 10 panel or 12 panel they do, yeah. they do a routine test where if you didn't drink that night, it doesn't show anything. Right. You know, but when you are in an impaired professional program, they make sure they, I mean, they're more careful because when you test randomly, let's say I'm tested on, on December 15th or December 25th. Right. I know... most likely i won't be tested until january 10th <laughs> i have the room to drink <laughs> right and stop at on 8th or 9th <laughs> and then it won't show it won't on a regular show test up. regular test it won't show up. but this test yes and uh, there's no way you can now see i thought that that, that alcohol was was only tested with either breath or blood i didn't know because the test that i mean i use tests too and the mm-hmm. tests that i use don't include alcohol if we have alcohol issues we use a breath you know breathalyzer but that's only 24 hours yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we don't have anything that that would do you know like 10 days mm-hmm. that's a long time well, yeah. does that that help keep people on track on a little track, bit better yeah. well you can't lie yeah you can't mess the around the thing about mm-hmm. addiction is dishonesty mm-hmm. we always figure out how to do it <laughs> 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 so that gets you you know on a track because you can't mess with it <laughs> so because mm-hmm. they that uh, there's there's more uh, awareness of that doctors and nurses and other professional medical professionals can be impaired that changes the attitude of the whole uh the whole profession exactly or, or yeah, yeah. It, or at least it helps yes Yeah. I mean actually I went to impaired physician program in Schaumburg mm-hmm. I mean I used to go to meetings in Schaumburg mm-hmm. yeah, like 14 MDs yeah yeah mm-hmm. quite a few yeah I mean, in quite a few. yeah and I know um lawyers have uh you know lawyers pilot, pilot system, pilots pilots mm-hmm. you know so I guess it happens to everybody it uh, obviously they say equal opportunity disease <laughs> it can happen to anyone it can happen to anybody yeah only thing is physicians are more difficult to treat Yeah. I mean so most impaired physician programs minimum is 90 days in patient minimum mm-hmm. then can go up to, if you are anesthesiologist it goes up to 180 days they go by how much access do we have to chemicals mm. ah okay anesthesiologist have a lot more access to opiates and the more access you have the longer you're going to stay longer you end up end up staying 
Yeah. Even though, let's say, when anesthesiologist, my drug of choice is alcohol, even then, I spent six months. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then you mentioned that there are addictionologists now. That's a, that is a, it is a specialty. It's been there quite some time. Quite yeah. some time. Yes. Okay. Okay. Actually, and we have two boards for addiction. One is American Psychiatric Association has a two-year training in addiction medicine and has a board. Okay. It is also called ASAM. Yeah. I think you guys use that. Yeah. American Society of Addiction Medicine. Addiction Medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's also been there probably 15, 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. Okay. And did you go back and get... I'm ASM certified, yes. Okay. So you are you're in, you are considered an addictionologist? Yes. Okay. That's, that's good to know. <laughs> there's not many. I don't think there's really... Very, I don't think there's very many, at least in our area. Are there very many as a specialty? Compared to McHenry County, I don't think there's anybody really specialized. Dr. Brightwell uh -huh. does it too. I don't know that he has ASM certified or not. I'm not sure. Okay. So you may be the only addictionologist in town. Probably here. around the city. Yeah. And in a general sense, in a broader sense, in other in other places in the country, is it a, a pretty generally a pretty small, uh, a pretty small specialty, or, or are there more physicians specializing in addictions? You know, at one time when uh, Lutheran General was opening clinics everywhere. Mm -hmm. Probably there were a lot more physicians who practice addiction medicine. I see. You know, Dr. Dude is one of uh, yeah. Dr. Dude, for example. Yeah. He's a now he's a physician, but is in recovery. Started working at Lutheran General. Uh huh. He ran. He died. Uh, I think about four years ago. But he used to be the in charge of the impaired physician program. And he's the greatest man. He's a big advocate of uh, impaired physicians. Yeah. He really takes them under their wing, under his wing, and help them recover. He ran. He ran another hospital before he came to Lutheran. Yeah, Lutheran. Okay. I want to say I I can't remember. I think he worked in Mundline. Remember, Lutheran used to have yeah a center in Mundline. Yeah, Parkside. Parkside. Yeah. Parkside used to run the Parkside. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So well, that's a good, that's good. You know, it's good information because I don't think people really understand, really in general, number one, that it's a specialty, number two, that it's a good idea if they're going to see somebody, if they have an addictions problem, that they see somebody knowledgeable about the kind of medications, which is really what I want to, where I kind of want to go tonight because, I, you know, my experience is there's a lot of recovering people that are on medications. Yes. More today than ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so... Well, first of all, I assume that the medications are primarily for what we would call co-occurring mental health problems. Mostly. Yeah. Mostly. Mm -hmm. Which you know, and you know, so you know what? Just really quick, what I, I wouldn't know what that was. Okay. Co-occurring. Co-occurring. Co yeah. Co-occurring means people having two illnesses, like you can have diabetes and hypertension. Okay. Same way you can have substance abuse problem. And also a depression, anxiety, ADD, something else. So you, you were already in, maybe you were already in treatment, but you, you might need something else to for a different symptom, for a different problem. Right. Okay. Apart from addictions, you might have another problem. Got it. Okay. It could be contributing. Sometimes, you know, my wife left me. I can't sleep at night, so I start drinking. Eventually, that becomes a problem. So it can start like this or... I have a problem, then my wife leaves me, then I get depressed, she left me. <laughs> <laughs> so, either way, right? So, I think, I think uh, about 90%, 90 to 100% of the alcoholics that I know want it to be the first way. My wife left me, then I drank. <laughs> so, so, then, so, so then it's the wife's fault, and she's the one who has the psychiatric right. diagnosis. But, uh, but, you know, so, but I think that people don't, you know, in general, that's, it, that wasn't as much a, as commonly accepted a, a, a notion, at least in the recovering community, mm -hmm. as it is today. More so today, you think that? I don't know, but if you look at the statistically, what they say is, let's let's go for sorry, when you go for co-occurring illnesses. The the more deviant you are, in the sense, suppose you you are a male alcoholic, right. your chances of having a co-occurring illness is about ten percent. Okay. Women, it's almost 50%, 50%. For alcoholism, right? Okay. The marijuana goes a little higher. So you go to IV drugs, you probably have up to 80% of the time because you also have 
more deviant to get the drug to get okay. for me to get heroin i have to go to chicago find a way go to the south side right stay in the car so the more deviant i am to get the drug the more likely i have a other uh, psychiatric problem a, a co-occurring psychiatric okay. problem and what we don't know is is that co-occurring psychiatric problem something that is there from the start or caused by the environment of the addiction we don't we don't know that many times okay, the problem is is it is it my experience because of my consequence let's say i mean obviously we all hit a bottom when sure. you're an addict sure then my wife leaves me i lose my life, driving license i lose my medical license of course i'm going to be depressed right it's a human emotion right so i'm not going to call it as a co-occurring illness right it's <laughs> not a diagnosis it's not a diagnosis even if i go to my doctor and say i'm depressed i don't see any purpose i lost my house i lost my wife i lost my license i'm going to be depressed am i going to treat that i i won't i will i'm going to take it as a is my my human emotion of my consequences sure. so i need i need to help them to come out of that right. hopeless feeling get on track go to the whatever you need to do to maintain sobriety right obviously tulsa program and the support will mm-hmm. help them you know the other people though usually is let's say my wife left me i never had a problem before that okay okay then my wife left me i can't sleep so then i go to the bar and start drinking because i'm lonely mm-hmm. then it slowly down then i get a dui then i say god my life is unmanageable i come to aa right you can see there's the a difference. pattern you know let's say i'm drinking on the weekends on sundays after mowing the lawn i got drunk yeah. every night <laughs> then my wife leaves me then i get depressed you can feel it it's right. more a consequence of it of the al- there some some would be more a consequence of the alcohol and you can see that most of the time you can't yeah and and but other times it's when it's not that's where you might be looking more at it as a disorder yes and that and then and then when you when when you treat that disorder well, so we're talking about depression now okay and i assume we we could talk about anxiety mm-hmm. and some mm-hmm. of the other bipolar and things like that but um when you when you treat then when you treat an alcoholic for depression what what kinds of things do you do you know you know i guess the word is psychopharmacologically mm-hmm. what do you do what do you do with the drugs how does that work so what happens is in depression typically what happens is we believe there are two kinds of thinking rational thinking and emotional thinking okay normally they go hand in hand yeah when you are depressed you stop thinking rationally you think emotionally nothing goes wrong for me i look at one bad thing and say my life sucks <laughs> you know <laughs> so the goal is you know that you do pharmacologically or psychologically is to make him to start his rational thinking i guess yeah okay so well i have a flat tire doesn't mean my wife my the life world sucks is not ending. yeah right. i have 50000 miles on my car and of course i'm going to have a flat tire i'm i'm a lazy bum <laughs> i haven't checked my tires and changed the tires <laughs> you know So I, I'm not going to generalize one negative thing in my life and okay. say my life sucks. Okay. Like I'm a successful physician, I have so many positive things in my life. Right. So how well, how soon I can start using my rational thinking. The medications, even when they work, they make it easier for you to think rationally. Hmm. You know, one sad thing, you're not going to say my life sucks in general. Right. Well, right. It's, it's okay, these are my choices, I can go on kind of thing. How soon can you do that? Even the medications, what, what we believe is they make you think more rationally. Uh-huh. And the medications today um what what kind of what 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 sort of medications are generally used today? I know the the serotonin reuptake inhibitors are pretty yes. Mm-hmm. Now, that was a that was a whole that was a mouthful that probably needs to be explained by you. Okay. <laughs> what happens in in my experience? Again, I see a screwed patients i see people i don't see all alcoholics so obviously i can't say all of them do right. people who come to see a psychiatrist they already have identified a problem let's say i feel sad i don't see any hope and my life sucks right <laughs> so you, you use drugs like ssri they're not a mood altering drugs and they don't give you buzz they don't give you you can't get addicted you can't abuse so that again as mentioned earlier they make you think rationally so you don't feel so negative you start 
looking at the choices in life right. and see how else can I pull myself out of it. Okay, I need to go to AA, get my license back. You know, like all of what we did. When right. we went to recovery, we did the right things to get whatever it takes for us to get the license, get my wife back or find a new girlfriend who is supportive to me right. and move on. So, and it's you know, to me, what you're saying is it's it's important for people to hear. Like, there's people who have consequences and feel sad and feel some something that they might describe as depression, and those aren't people that need treatment. They won't respond, even if you right come to me, and even if I put you on Prozac, it won't make a difference. It's not going to help those kind of things. Right. But generally, if you look at addictive diseases, basically it's a behavior nexus. Mm-hmm. So anything we can't do anything in moderation. So we are kind of kind of an obsessive personalities. Right. I'm talking about I'm talking about my experience in AA. Right. I'm not as a psychiatrist. When I go to my people, I, what they tell me in the groups, in my meetings is mm-hmm. basically they are somewhat compulsive, perfectionistic, mm-hmm. kind of anxious people in general. Right. So character characteristically of the of that that group. Sure. Like majority of them. Right. Okay. So they tend to, you know, SSRIs are basically anti-compulsive drugs. Uh-huh. So they might help, not drinking part, I'm talking about thinking part. The which thinking is, part, right. Which is, I won't be so obsessive, so dwelling on one negative thing and say, Yeah, well, we catch up on the flat tire and make the world, make the world out. Exactly. And, and, well, and the other thing is, I think it's important for people to hear that, that those, those drugs are not mood-altering. Yes. They're not addictive. Yes. And they're not they're not habit. They're yeah, SSRIs habit. and SNRIs, basically both kinds of drugs we use for depression. Yeah. Neither one of them are mood altering. Okay. Not like benzos or opiates. Okay. Other drugs we they use. affect the thinking. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, you know, because there's a lot of you know, you hear you hear people talk about, you know, that you don't take, you know, you're you're an AA, the twelve steps should be enough. And in some cases, it, that's true, mm-hmm. but not in every case. Yes. And that's where you come in. Mm-hmm. My first experience in AA was, first meeting I went in 2001. So the old AA building, uh-huh. I walked in, the guy, first thing he asked me, what medica- you know, do you have a sponsor? I said, I don't have a sponsor. First meeting I went. Okay. <laughs> he scared the hell out of me, asking my personal things about what medication you take, blah, blah, blah. Scared me. Then I didn't go to AA for a for a few months, thinking that if I take medication, they are going to throw stones at me. <laughs> you know, are untouchable. <laughs> you know, right. some and um, some old timers have a rigid idea. Yeah. Because old times, yes, people used to give Valium. So addictive, with that notion, uh, addictive drugs, yeah. mood altering drugs. So substituting alcohol to Valium, I can understand the old way of thinking. But I see the younger guys, the new um, people are. So for like four or five years, they tell you if you have a problem, go to a shrink or do what, go to a counselor, do whatever you need to do. Right. But they won't go into intrude into your personal life and ask you things. You know, what do you take? Don't take this. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Right. Well, I think it's good to make that distinction, though, because yeah, I mean, just just from the guests that we've had on the show, and either a lot of people don't necessarily know that there's a distinction. Yes, you know, and things have changed over the years, or you know, it's just kind of a common misconception, or whatever the case may be. But yeah, it's... Mm. even even not only me, other addictionologists or people. Once you are an addict, they'll be very, very, very be hesitant to give any mood altering drug. Mm-hmm. Any, I mean, actually, what we do is we are talking last night. Let's say, let's say I see a patient has a panic disorder for many years, and learned using alcohol calms her down. Mm-hmm. So she can do things. I'm convinced that she has definitely has a panic disorder. Mm-hmm. Even then, we'll be hundred times think, "Am I going to use this?" I try to use everything else before I go to a benzo. Right. You know, unless they are sober for quite some time and do the right things. Right. Then I will be inclined to try. Right. <laughs> and with a close supervision. Yeah. Check the website. Is she getting Xanax from somebody else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is she taking any other drugs? Is she going to meetings? You know, like we talked earlier, I make sure they're accountable, that yeah. they're doing the yeah. right things. Okay. You know, I'm not going to give them Xanax or Clonopin and say, see me in a month. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, here's a, bo- <laughs> here's a bottle of pills. Yeah. And, and okay, so now we're, we're starting to talk a little bit about anxiety, which is another common 
common thing. And, and the, the medications for, for anxiety are generally uh, benzodiazepines? Yes. Most difficulties, most illness you can have is anxiety and, and alcoholism. Yeah. I'm talking about not general anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. We are talking about distinct panic attacks. Okay. Where they have sudden surge of palpitations. Right. And impending doom. Right. And they know, they think alcohol, obviously it's a tranquilizer, it's going to control them. Right. Those are the worst nightmare for us <laughs> to treat. And here's where the here's where the term, you know, I'm going to ask, this, this is in, in here somewhere, but I want to ask you now while I'm thinking about it is the, the term self-medication. Mm-hmm. Because I hear that all the time, and it's a, to me, it's a slippery slope because it implies that there is an underlying problem. Yes. And in some cases, there is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, there aren't. Right. And self-medication can be a justification to use alcohol. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so that's a tough one to unwind. That's, where, that's what you're talking about. That's yeah. why it's a nightmare. Because yeah. the ones that have real anxiety are self-medicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have anxiety. To some, to some, some, degree, to sure. some degree, yes. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so how do you go about d- determining that whether or not it's appropriate to use a benzo for, I guess, if, they, if they're not using any other medications, if they've been doing the right things for a period of time, if they don't have any other uh, history of abuse? Mm-hmm. Of, you look at the family history. Let's say okay. my mother is an alcoholic okay. and I have a panic disorder yeah. I'll, and I developed alcoholism. I even, let's say I didn't develop alcoholism. So only my, uh, my uncle and my mother has alcoholism yeah. or substance abuse and I have a panic disorder. Even then, we hesitate to use benzos yeah. because I'm giving them a, like buying a gun for a suicidal patient. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Even though they haven't abused, you're still concerned, am I going to give them likely to abuse because they have the genes? Yeah. Okay. You know? So let's say you have the I mean, you have the genes and you've also been abusing. So in anxiety, what happens is there are three things, right? One is anticipatory anxiety, like what we call what-if syndrome. Yeah. Second one is panic attacks. Right. Third one is avoidant behaviors. You start you start avoiding things you think will bring on the anxiety. Right. So when you have all those three... That would be me in airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> so specific, we don't worry about right. it. Like you do private five times a year. Yeah. So even if you take a Xanax five times a year, it's no big deal. Right. You know, right. we are talking about gen, you know, day-to-day things. I can't go to the grocery store. I can't drive on yeah. Route 14. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. kinds of people, you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So even then what you do is you try to deal with the anticipatory anxiety because that brings on the panic attack. So you try to control the anticipatory anxiety with SSRIs, without using benzos. I see, without using benzos. And you see can. whether if I less anticipate, I will have less have panic, panic attacks. attacks. Because the panic attacks are the things that are really disabling. Right. Those are the thing, that's exactly. the thing that yeah. makes it really bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, and then, um, then what about? See, there's another category that I wanted to ask about, and that I hear a lot about. And there's a couple other ones, but I'll, I'll ask about. Uh, I, I kind of jokingly call them the diagnosis du jour because, you know, ADHD, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody. You know, everybody that I talk to yes. who has a kid who has substance abuse problems. You know, I won't say everyone, mm-hmm. but you know, he has ADHD. Mm-hmm. And of course, maybe it does, I, you know, and needs to be, t- I, you know, I don't know. So, you know, they probably are going to end up in your office yeah. because, you know, they need to be tested. Mm-hmm. Or, or the, because this, so now we have a better testing now. Yeah. Other testing is basically you give us corners, it's a self rating. I have trouble, fall, trouble focusing, I'm jittery, I forget my, I can't find my car keys. You satisfy. <laughs> I mean, I can't find my car keys many times. Right. We all qualify. Uh-huh. Those things you say, yes, yes, yes. The kindness will so, show you that you have ADD. Right. You know. But and and you know what the the kids that that I see are smart enough to know mm-hmm. how to answer the the questions. Yeah, of course. To mm-hmm. get the mm-hmm. to get the substances. And they tell you, I took my friends. I was so wonderful. I was able to focus. Yeah. And I did very well. And I came and did my homework that night. Yeah, <laughs> so everybody's happy. Give me and, Adderall. You know, so let's give them some more Adderall or Vyvanse <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, it's like now it's become a drug of 
a pretty common drug of abuse in you know trading, selling yes. the whole yes. underground uh, economy of that. Mm-hmm. So, what what do you how do you how do you handle? I mean, what, what percentage of the people that come in thinking that they have ADHD actually probably do have what you would diagnose as ADHD? In high school, usually the teachers. I depend on the teachers. Okay. If the teachers, if I mean, if you look at the ADD rating scales, one for the parents, one for the teacher, one, one for, for you. <clears throat> one for you, not the kid. I mean, me means kid. Me means kid. I'm a patient. Okay, so I'm a kid. kid, parent, teacher. Teacher. So three. you basically look at the teacher's Connor's kind of thing. Yeah. And he's jittery. He's disturbing the class and the class class clown and he's always all over the place and the grades are yeah. poor. Then, let's say, even if you try the medication, they have to change. In a month later, his grades has to improve. His homework has to get better. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I won't continue. Why would I continue? Right, because so it's you're not as bad as before. Why would you take a drug? Right. So even when you, I mean, I'm not talking about addicts. I'm talking about a kid comes to me and say, have trouble focusing on all those things. So you give that to the teacher, give to the parent, and give to yourself, and you get the information. Let's say the patient, father or uncle, or somebody has an addiction, you go to non-stimulants. Yeah. Like okay. you have Satera and Clonidine, you have other drugs that are non-stimulant, you can't abuse them. So we go for them. I see. So the teachers and the parents convinced that this kid has, and when you try, you have to make sure that he has, his grades has to improve, his so homework has to improve. improve. Yes. Otherwise, you don't continue. Sure. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And and part of the reason I ask is because a lot of kids, a lot of the kids that I talk to or that I've seen or, you know, that the ADHD and the, the, uh, the drugs used for the treatment of ADHD somehow seem to be in the landscape of their beginnings of their abuse. Yes. And, and it may not be the, the thing it may be, it may be ADHD, Adderall, mm. smoking pot. Maybe the pot helped the ADHD a little bit. Yes, and then had some consequence. But it's in the landscape, mm-hmm. and so it's very difficult to sort all of these things out. I tag. I see people like that. Yeah, they have they in the in tag for let's say for marijuana, caught smoking marijuana, right? Carrying right. paraphernalia at school, right? Suspended, come to tag and says he has ADD. I mean, those are the most difficult patients. Then you have no choice except to try non-stimulants, and they don't like you, and they don't like your treatment. <laughs> and then they won't come back. They don't come back to the doctor. They don't give them Adderall. Exactly. You mentioned Stratera was mm-hmm. a non-addictive. Non-stimulant. Non-stimulant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Non-addictive, obviously. Yeah, okay. You know what? When we're talking about addictiveness and I didn't I didn't catch that when when you were talking about the the benzos but what what's the time frame where something like that would be useful or might be becoming you know kind of kind of dangerous you know is there like a time frame like if I took it took a benzo for a week or a month or a year is there like is it just different for everyone like yeah I mean I'm, I'm sure there's not addiction, exact but addictions and use and abuse mm-hmm. right so if I use alcohol, <laughs> like everybody else, I take my wife on Friday, have a glass of wine, absolutely have no problem with alcohol. So in the benzos also, if you use them, I mean, I have patients who use, never has any addictions before. You give them 30 pills for 30 days and come back 30 days later, never lose their prescription. I mean, it's not difficult as a physician to find out who's abusing right? because they always lose the prescriptions. They're suitcase got lost in the airplane, the yeah. drugs are in the suitcase, or the dog eat the prescription, you, you know, you know, right. it doesn't take you, I don't have to be an FBI agent to find out. <laughs> <laughs> in three months, I know who's abusing me. Right, right, because you'll, you've, you've gotten those phone calls. You got the phone calls. Yeah, we, yeah. we need this, we need that, yeah. And we ran sure. out, and I always run out, they call, uh, supposed to run for 30 days, in 25 days, they go for the refill, the pharmacist calls you. Right. Because he can't refill right. for 30 days. So you get the message that this guy is taking more than I gave it to him. Right. And the second thing I always tell my patients is never take, you got in trouble because you abuse, right? Part of this, if you need to change the dosage, you need to call me. Either increase or decrease. 
You start practicing medicine, that's how we get in trouble. <laughs> you know. You need a license for that, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So self medication, you know, I think that's the topic. We all need to have a cause and effect. Right. You know, I want to just for a long time I just my own drinking. Right. Uh, I'm say I'm drinking my own getting drunk mm-hmm. is because of my stomach surgery. Mm. I want to explain why why am I getting drunk and make pool of myself at home. Is only only thing I could think was this all happening. I mean that's the progression of my illness. I know that, but my explanation at that time when I was still sick was. It's all because of my stomach surgery. So I don't have stomach. My alcohol goes directly into the duodenum. Uh-huh. It's absorbed, so I get drunk. You get drunk quicker. <laughs> drunk so quicker. It's the surgery, it's not the surgery, alcohol. surgery, not alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> not thinking, of course, that you could drink less. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Think of that. For the surgery, no problem. So, so, yeah, we all find an right, excuse for right. it. For it, just, it just seems to work okay. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I think that that's a great... Let, let's let's take a let's take a a, a five minute uh, or three minute break here. Let let uh, let's listen to a little music. We have a little uh, little little Duke Ellington here for your listening enjoyment, and we'll be back yet with you in just a few minutes. All right, good deal. See you in a few. Okay, we're back. Uh, we're back here for the second half um, with uh, Dr. Ramachamuri, and uh, interesting conversation so far. <laughs> Had an interesting conversation, haven't we? Yeah, um, yeah. Let me just check and see. Do, do either it, just sometimes we pass around a pad and take questions from the studio audience, okay. but in lieu of having, do you guys have any questions? Anything come up for you that you want to ask? 
I do. Mm-hmm. It, this is really a question that some of my clients ask me that I don't have a good answer for because of my background doesn't prepare me for it. When you say a serotonin uptake, would you explain what that does and what that means? Okay. The the belief is low levels of serotonin will cause depression. <clears throat> so the goal is to increase the serotonin. So the way so what they do is they in, inhibit the reuptake. So when it's like a tap, the water comes into the bucket and it leaks from the bucket. So if we cut down the leak from the bucket, slow down the leak, the levels will go higher. So the mm-hmm. serotonin is reuptake back, like like a recirculation. You slow down the recirculation, so the levels will go up. Am I clear? Yeah. Okay. Clear. So that's how these drugs will decrease the reuptake, so the levels will go higher. They're supposed to clear the depression. Mm. Okay. Well, how, well, I have clients that are on. Cymbalta mm-hmm. or fibromyalgia, and so some, how does that work for for the body versus depression? If you look at the chronic pain, the two things. One is most people with chronic pain have some amount of depression mm-hmm. because your life is limited. You're chronically in pain, so maybe that will increase. They become less depressed, so they're more motivated. But Cymbalta by itself, there are other antidepressants also make you perceive pain less intensely. Not that they're not pain medication, but your brain perceives the pain less intensely, so you don't feel that much of a pain. That's how the Cymbalta works. Either it clears the secondary depression from chronic pain, and second, your brain perceives less of a pain. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cover. So the pain is still there. The could be still there for them in the fibromyalgia. Yeah, it will be less intense. I see. You know, okay. instead, of ten, instead of five or six, it becomes three. They give you zero to ten for pain. Ten is the severe pain, like acute pain, like appendicitis or any of those things. Chronic pain usually between five and six, so that you perceive it as three. Okay, so I don't want to open up a can of worms here, but... Would you call that healing, or would you call that putting a Band-Aid over the pain? In chronic pain, your goal is not to, I mean, make them functional. You have to decrease their pain perception. Ah. If my pain perception is six, I don't want to leave the house. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to cook. I don't want to clean. I want to lay in the bed. So I become more functional. So I can cook. I can go to the grocery store. Chronic pain be- is, a, is a syndrome that includes the 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 psychological and emotional as well as the physical. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that yeah, so that 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 drug that you're talking about, the Cymbalta, mm-hmm. changes the perception, which then changes that whole psychological emotional package. That, right. You that become more productive. Your perception of pain. Yeah. Your perception of pain is it, it is the same as pain, really. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That is pain. Mm-hmm. How I how I perceive pain. If I if something could happen to me, and that could be that could be a nine mm-hmm. for me, and that could be a four for for. No. But the, can the fibromyalgia be getting worse, and you not know it because you're taking that Cymbalta? See, fibromyalgia is no. It's not like a diabetes. I can say how much is your blood sugar is. It's like ADD or depression. If you say my depression is bad. How would they measure it's bad or not? You know, we say suicidal is bad. <laughs> if you're not suicidal, I cannot be suicidal, but it'll be severely disabling, disabled with, with depression. Mm-hmm. So it's a self-scoring illness. It's not like, let's say I have diabetes, I have, my blood sugar is 480 and I increase the insulin, my blood sugar comes back to 120 and normal. So fibromyalgia, is, again, there's no set criteria or measures to say this is what it is, this is now it came. It's all self-perception. Got it. Other than, yeah. Okay. And I think... Thank you. You Did you have a question? I did. Um, okay. Doc, what does what low testosterone play? How does that play in uh, in depression? <laughs> this, uh, since I think this ad came in the, new, in the TV, yeah. they say your depression and your manhood and this will improve and you write on the skin. I don't know. It's like 
Even though I saw in the literature, some people responded to using testosterone. I have no experience myself, you know. But even if you look at the literature, it's not that many. There's complaining about like two percent of the population. Yeah. They they improve, I believe, by testosterone. Oh. You know. But when I saw them, the people I, who ask me for testosterone, their levels are normal. So if the levels are low, giving a testosterone is fine. Like like diabetes, you know, blood sugar is high. You give insulin to lower the blood sugar. Your testosterone level is low. You 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 give the testosterone so that their bone growth or masculinity and other things are improved. But I don't know about depression. Even though I saw on the literature saying that people taking testosterone, their mood has improved. Okay. Um, See, I. Yeah, I haven't seen that ad, but um, I I have been tested and I have been shown in tests that I have. This is Daniel speaking, by the way. This isn't Rick and Chris. Can we make just as a just yeah and just yeah maybe well. Can we maybe we maybe we don't want to go to a personal question? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. On the on the air, and then maybe that we can take care of the personal questions after. Uh huh. Because no yeah, I mean legitimate questions, uh-huh. and I'm glad I'm glad you asked them, but I think it would be better to to cover a couple more general things here if, I, if that's okay. Do you, is anything going on that you you have in your head? Okay. Um, one of the things that um, I wanted to ask about is what, so what is it? What is an alcoholic or or, or a drug, somebody who has an addictions problem? What can they do about chronic chronic pain if they can't use opiate pain medication or yeah? What how what what do we do with a person that has chronic pain? <laughs> is that another nightmare case? Is it, I'm not like an addict. Somehow I feel. I feel People have a drug of choice. Right. You know, if my drug of choice is not opiates and is in disabling pain, and as long as it's properly monitored, I don't see anything wrong. You know, oh no. Okay. So now I'll tell you one thing. If a drug, if, if an alcoholic's drug of choice is not opiates or, or an opioid mm-hmm. drug, drugs, then a monitored use of those kinds of pain medications could be okay. If it's a proven, let's just say I have a back pain and I have no medical evidence, my MRI on the back is normal. Then I say I'm in pain. Right. See, then is the problem. <laughs> no <laughs> if you have an evidence, for you. Yeah. So <laughs> I can't say you don't have pain, but I feel uncomfortable to give opiates for them. Right. If you have you know, bulging disc or you, know, you go to physical therapy, it doesn't help. You know, then you know, they, I'll be more open Right. Say okay, taking, right. you know. Okay, so it it sounds like it's a difficult question that you have to ask. You have to manage that carefully. Now there are drugs, agonist and antagonist at the same time. Yeah. So you get, you don't get the euphoria. Okay. People use drugs that have both agonist and antagonist. Yeah, like so suboxone. They, like suboxone, for example. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it blocks the. It, so it has a what we call a ceiling effect. After 24 milligrams, no matter how much you take, doesn't give the buzz. Right. It does give the sense of well-being. So people can abuse Suboxone because it does give the sense of well-being. But again, it's the ceiling effect. So you can't, like alcohol, like the lady, the, the European singer who died, mm-hmm. I forgot her name. Remember the singer who died from yeah. alcohol intoxication? Yes. Yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. The Amy Winehouse? Amy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amy yeah. Winehouse. Yeah, Amy. Thank you. Yeah. So... So yeah, I lost my thought. <laughs> well, we were talking. We were talking about suboxone, the ceiling. Uh, because the ceiling, you don't get. You can't get to, after twenty-four. No matter how much you take, nothing happens. But her, when she died of, of alcohol poisoning, the, the alcohol does not have the ceiling, so she right. drank herself to death. I see. Okay, because that's one thing that comes up in in the recovery community. People wonder what to, what to do about that. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's we're dealing with that today. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. as that is, you know, that kind of thing. Um, what kind of what kind of legitimate prescription drugs are are the most commonly abused that you that you that you know of? What what what's out there? Right now in McKinley County, the, yeah. I, mean, I think you are saying too, 
most common drug is prescription opiates prescription narco narco vicodin narco vicodin oxycontins okay very popular okay very popular <laughs> okay <laughs> ritalin people abuse they like adderall better than ritalin because adderall is more stronger you know can we in yeah can we talk um a little bit about what kind of drugs are used for detox and what your what you know about that like what when somebody's detoxing from alcohol when somebody's detoxing from opiates See, detoxing i believe has to be done in the hospital okay you can't do it as an outpatient because again you're giving them medication we have no monitoring okay and dts you talking about alcohol alcohol dts can 50% can die okay so there's a high risk it's not like a simple illness like pneumonia you can take penicillin <laughs> you know right. so i feel these guys has to be detoxed for 5 days in the hospital they come out clean right and work from there okay on. and what kind of medications are used in detox and i assume that's it that's the very short term yeah benzos basically benzos Ben- typically people use lorazepam diazepam clonazepam any of the pams okay all any pams uh, any pams. <laughs> okay any pams <laughs> all right and then what about what about detox from opiates and how how is how is that done and is that generally done in the hospital not in the hospital what how's that work so opiates basically they, uh, they get sick like a dog but they won't die <laughs> like <laughs> alcohol okay <laughs> the risk of death is very low i mean it's very painful dts because they're sick like a dog they throw up diarrhea and heart flashes i mean i can see them in my waiting room when they come in DT, when they come in opiate withdrawal right you can see they are sick they have the flu <laughs> yeah, yeah severe flu <laughs> yeah right yeah Okay. So, how do you what happened was Rosecrans, one of the premier hospitals in town, they tried to detox them on Suboxone. Mhm. Before we used to use Clonidine, which is not a mood altering drug. Now, mm-hmm. since Suboxone came, so what Rosecrans did was initially, I think 6 7 years ago, they just used to detox them on 5 days on Suboxone and send them home. Mhm. And they come back in a month again in a DTS again. in I'm sorry opiate withdrawal so that's why they started using suboxone for maintenance uh okay so that's how so initially it came as a detox drug just to detox them in 5 days or 10 days and send them home with no medication right and we're talking about detoxing either from heroin or from other opiates yes oxycontins any of them. right because suboxone is the is 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 got the agonist and the mm-hmm. yeah you say it's what you call a partial agonist It's like your it's not an opiate. So if you take a urine test, it doesn't show as an opiate because okay. it's not an opiate. Okay. But it is what you call a partial agonist means like your first cousin. He's <laughs> like you but he's not you. Right. <laughs> you know? a couple of the same genes. Yeah. <laughs> you might see the resemblance. Okay. Yeah. All right. And but now so they now they only now they're using suboxone more as a a, a maintenance So suboxone we use for three reasons I mean four reasons one is obviously for for detoxing second is it gives the sense of well-being so they don't crave to go for opiates again right third one it blocks the outside opiates if i take suboxone i can shoot heroin nothing happens to me it blocks it okay you know because they give naltrexone which is an antagonist yeah because of the antagonist anything you take from outside it's blocked Right. Okay. If you do too much to unblock it, you go into precipitated withdrawal. Severe withdrawal. Sick like a dog. Right. <laughs> not so, like not right. like withdrawing, sick like a dog. <laughs> right. So that's the three reasons we use it because they can't use as long as they take suboxone. Hmm. Now we have naltrexone injections now. Which is like an antabuse. Okay. But it's for a month. So you give a shot for a month. you take any opiates you get sick like a dog okay so yeah. when do i use it i probably have maybe three patients so they repeatedly fail so uh, you know if i am on suboxone i can stop one day on 36 hours and i can start using again okay. so i can show my wife i took suboxone not do it on friday saturday i get my paycheck and i can use it i have patients exactly like that yeah so then they repeatedly fail then we use vivitrol which is a naltrexone an injection form once a month right initially it is approved for alcoholism yeah and now we've had, they, a, we've had a mutual yeah so person. now they use it for right. opiate 
I see. Prediction. Okay. Um, we're we're actually we're we're time has gone fast and we're we're running out. Um, but I guess we covered most of the things because I guess one of the other questions I was going to ask is about the cravings. You mentioned the Vivitrol, and I guess what I want to talk about just um, we didn't talk about bipolar, and that's another one of those right. um, diagnosis du jour mm-hmm. kind of things that um, you know and. So, can you say anything briefly about how you how that fits in with with what you see in terms of recovery and the people you see that have bipolar? You know, I'll just say from my experience, there's a lot fewer people that look to me like they actually have a have the disease of bipolar than feel like they do. Yeah. Um, you see, if you look in the literature, they say. 50% of the bipolar patients abuse mood altering drugs when okay. they're high. They okay. want to calm themselves down. Okay. But if you look at alcoholics and see how many of them has bipolar, probably very few. <laughs> Do you follow me? If you look at the bipolar patient, right. you know, his risk is very high to right. abuse, abuse drugs right. like cocaine or alcohol, whatever it is. When they're low, they use cocaine. When they're high, they use alcohol. Right. You know, when I have... I mean, we have a mutual client, I think Debbie sees him. Mm-hmm. He's a clear manic. Mm-hmm. He bought six motorbikes, four, um, um, I mean, snow ski, snowmobiles, yeah. and two trucks to carry them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, classic. I mean, he comes right. to my office and he acts and he can't stop. Right. And, yeah. and he's in recovery. He's a board member. I mean, like, yeah. you know, I mean, he's a very... I think 17 years he's been clean. Yeah. Always kind of hypermanic. Just somehow he was... So he justifies buying these motorbikes to make money by fixing them, which he does, mm-hmm. and which makes sense to an extent, but not to the extent he has seven bikes. One of them is a BMW. He bought it for 20000 <laughs> You know? And so, so there's functional... Uh, yeah. There's kind of like functional manics. So, uh, hypermanic. Hypermanic. Okay. <laughs> So and those drugs are non-mood altering anyway. None of the drugs we use for bipolar are mood altering. Okay. They're all mood stabilizers. They have no way you can abuse them. They're yeah. mostly anti-seizure drugs. Okay. So you can't abuse them. Okay. And they're safe for people take seizure drugs the rest of their life. So they're very safe. So if someone, so in essence, if someone thinks that they have that kind of a problem, they go, they can go get get a diagnosis or get get a, get an opinion. And if they need to be medicated for that, mm-hmm. that the drugs that are used yeah. for that are not mood-altering. Absolutely anyway. not mood-altering. Let me ask you one last question, and then we're, we're gonna, I'm going to have to close. But we, but I guess, what would you say? What advice would you give to um, the recovering community in terms of what you, what, what, what would the dangers be? What would, you, what warning would you give if you could, if you could say in general? what to be careful about in terms of drugs for the recovering community? As long as they honestly tell the physician they're in recovery, mm-hmm. most physicians will think twice giving drugs that can alter their mood okay. or can get them hooked on. They will try to avoid those things. You know, okay. most doctors. I mean, so be, be, be straight with your physician. The, yeah, you yeah. have to be honest and say I'm in recovery. My yeah. patients who are on Suboxone, I give them a card in their wallet to carry them. Mm-hmm. And Mm-hmm. And I always talk to the dentist. We plan when we stop the suboxone, when you get the dental work done, mm-hmm. when they stop the opiates again, when they go back. So you have to be closely monitored. Okay. All right. Um, all right. That one's going to, it's a good question. It's going to have to wait. I've got one, you know, one minute. Okay. So I'm going to, at this point, I think we're going to have to close, even though we got a lot, we got lots more to talk about. We could talk for another hour. <laughs> Just get we just got started. Yeah, yeah if we, we, we bring him back. Well, we, we would if we could get the poor. You know, we have to make this poor guy come out on a Sunday night. I'll pick him up. Well, we'll spread it out a little okay. bit. How's that? I'll come we'll on more time. Yes, Sunday off. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so uh, thank you very much for coming. I appreciate it, and uh, and thank you to our studio audience, to our listeners, um, and uh, thank you for making us a, a successful little. Underground support source for the recovering community. We'll email our reminders for next week's show. As always, we try to look at recovery from a wide and open. 
anything from. Uh, open your neighbor, and together we'll trudge the happy road to destiny. We hope you've enjoyed the show. See you at 8 p.m. next Sunday night. Thanks, Rick.